Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, one thing that the catechism does on a frequent basis is it uses contrasts to make a point very clear. We see that back in Lord's Day 2. The fact that the law of God requires that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, that we love our neighbor as ourself. But in that same Lord's Day, the Catechism lays out that we are inclined by nature not to love, but to hate both God and the neighbor. Well, through that contrast of love and hatred, our confession makes it clear that things are not the way they ought to be. In fact, that's putting it lightly. Things are actually the complete opposite of what they should be. And that reality that we confess in Lord's Day 2 leaves us with some questions. First among them, how did things get to be this way? Is it actually that bad? Well, Lord's Day 3 is now focused on getting us to those answers. The first angle considers what it is what we find in question and answer 6, namely the possibility that man may be inclined to such hatred because that's the way he's created. It's an important point. The first attempt to understand our current predicament is to take the blame and shift it to God. And the more you think about that, question six in itself actually leaves us feeling a little bit uneasy. It's because we know, we've been taught, most of us, that any attempt to blame God for anything will never lead to a good conclusion. That question itself almost comes across as quite blasphemous and slanderous towards God. But the way Lord's Day 3 is structured is that it sets in place another contrast to show us something about our sin and misery. By taking us right back to the beginning in answer 6, we're presented with the facts. God created man in a very particular way, and then it's man who went forward and made a complete mess of things. Yes, Lord's Day 3 is still focused on that whole topic of our sin and misery. But even though we're still in that first section of our confession we are again presented with the gospel of grace and the great restoration that the Lord is in the process of completing. When we see how God created man, then we also get a sense of what the finished product will look like. And so to bring it all together, Lord's Day 3 directs our attention to what happened in creation, what took place in paradise, the work that's being done now, which will be finished in the new Jerusalem. I preach to you the word of God under the following theme, God created man in his image. We note three things. In the first place, this position was given at creation. Secondly, this position was lost at the fall. And finally, this position is restored by the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, while question and answer six try to place the blame for man's current inclination to hatred at God's feet, the answer right away cuts that off. 
It sets up the contrast that while man, yes, is wicked and perverse, God created man good and in his image. That word good is worthy of some consideration. It's a word that we use on a relatively frequent basis when we're talking to talk about the quality of something. But there's a very specific sense in which we use that word. When we think about something good, we realize that it's above average, but there's still room for improvement above that. Think about the category of good on a report card from school. Good is better than satisfactory, but it's not yet at the level of excellent. Good good means that there's still room for growth. There's room for improvement. There's still something to work towards. But by saying that God created man good, that's not saying man still had some growth to do before he reached the next level. There's something much richer that's implied with the word good. When we look at it from the perspective of Scripture, then we actually see man could not be created at a higher level. Not only is good used as a description of man, that word good actually describes the very character of God. It's something you see throughout the Psalms. Psalm 100 verse 5. One particular reason for giving thanks to God is the fact that the Lord is good. Psalm 34 verse 8. David calls on the people to taste and see that the Lord is good. Belgian Confession, Article 1, we find the same thing. In our confession that there is only one God, one of the specific attributes or characteristics or perfections that's mentioned is that God is good. This is different than saying that God does good or that he gives good. At the end of Article 1, we confess that God is the overflowing fountain of all good, and that refers to his dealings with others. But saying that God is good, that means every part of his character, every part of who he is, is good. And there's that passage we read together in Genesis 1 verse 31. The end of creation, the end of the six days, God looks at everything that he's made. And he says it's very good. It was free from sin. There were no mistakes, there were no flaws, no weaknesses. Everything could function just the way that God created it to do so. And so by referring to man as being created good, there's that sense that man was free from sin, man was free from any flaw just like the rest of creation. But the fact that man was created good It also directs us to the fact that there's a direct connection between God and man. It's a different connection than what existed between God and the rest of his creation. It comes out when we consider that not only was man created good, but man was also created in God's image. If you take the time to read through all of Genesis 1, you won't find that kind of language for any part of creation except man. 
Not even the angels, those who serve before the throne of God, who dwell in glory, not even they are described as being created in God's image. That's something especially set aside for man. And it raises a question, what exactly does it mean to be created in the image of God? And to be fair, there's been a lot of study and a lot of debate done on this topic throughout the centuries. But there's a few key aspects we can focus on which help us to understand the riches of this position. In the first place, there's something already mentioned. When God created man good and in his image, it means that man as the creation reflected the creator. So all of creation would be able to see the creator in this crown of creation. But not only did man reflect God's goodness, there were other attributes that God possessed which man would reflect as well. Think of what our confession says to this point. God created man good and in his image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness. The catechism uses the words of Ephesians 4 verse 24. So being created in the image of God... It meant that man was intended to reflect different aspects of God's character to the rest of creation. But it's not just about portraying a nice image and nothing more than that. As we see from our scripture reading in Genesis 1, this reflection of God here on earth would be shown as man carried out the duties that God gave to him. Genesis 1 verse 26. The Lord says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. If we want to bring it all together, we can see that God created man to function as his representative here in creation. He's placed in this world, endowed with specific attributes that God possessed, also that he would rule over all creation, not in his own way, in a way that benefited him, but he would rule over creation as God would rule creation. But then it goes further, because being created in the image of God meant that between the creator and the creation, there was a very intimate bond set in place. We know of representation here on earth. In our own country, we have the governor general representing the king. When it comes down to it, there's no actual connection between the king and the governor general, other than something symbolic. But between God and man, there's this direct, intimate connection, all related to being created in God's image. You see, being created in God's image, after God's likeness, it was something that would be passed down through the generations. It was not just contained in Adam and Eve. It would go to their children. And it implies there was a family-like connection between God and man. 
This comes out in other places of Scripture. We read it in Genesis 5. Adam had a son in his own likeness. It's something we're going to consider a bit more in our second point. But the principle for now is that Adam had something that he would pass on to his children. The way God intended it is that his image would go through the generations. Genesis 3. What did Adam name his wife? He named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all the living. There's that connection between her and the generations that would follow. And the specific connection between God and Adam, meant to be passed down, comes out clearly in Luke 3. In that chapter, we read a genealogy of the Lord Jesus, tracing his human ancestry all the way back to Adam. And it's recorded there in Luke 3, verse 38, that Adam was the son of God. There you have that intimate connection that comes through being made in the image of likeness of God. Not only was man created to reflect God in his work and creation, but even more, being created in God's image meant that there was a familial relationship that God established. Adam was a son of God, a child of God. So when the Lord created Adam and Eve in the beginning, he didn't just set them loose and adrift in this world with the responsibility to reflect him with no connection to him. No, God created man in the beginning to be his children. Right from the beginning, it was meant to be like father, like son. Like father, like daughter. And when we think about it from that angle, then you see the contrast that comes out in question and answer six. Did God create man wicked and perverse? No, God created man good, perfectly able to carry out his task. God created man in his own image and likeness. God created man to be a child of the Most High. God gave to man that distinct honor and privilege of reflecting the Creator as far as the creation is able to do so. And so rather than blaming God for that hatred to which we are inclined... When we think about God's work of creation, the position that he gave to man, we're pointed in a different direction. Instead of trying to shift the blame, the only thing that can come out is those words of Psalm 144. Lord, what is man? Mere man, that you should even take note of him as you look down from heaven. Reflecting on what God gave to man at creation leads us to awe and wonder. At the same time, we are forced to recognize how far we fell with that fall into sin and how we gave up the position that God had granted. We come to our second point. fall into sin, recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3. It's the single most tragic bit of history that a person can read. Most of us have probably read it many times before. It's something that causes us to shake our heads. 
wonder, how could things go so wrong? At least other questions as well. How did Adam and Eve not see through the deception of the serpent? Would we have done the same thing in their position? Or would we have made a different choice? Reading Genesis 3 can actually leave us with feelings of disgust towards Adam and Eve. We can be left in a position where we blame them for our current predicament. We can be left thinking, why are we inclined to hate God and the neighbor? Well, it's Adam and Eve's fault. And with that, we see an attitude that has really taken root in our world today. People struggle with different things. Whether you're talking young people or you're talking adults. Very rarely will they step up and take responsibility for their problems. They go public. They try to blame their current predicament on their parents. They say, I wasn't raised properly. I wasn't taught proper values. I didn't have enough growing up. And that host of excuses continues to pour out via the talk shows and social media. But that's not the thinking that lies behind our confession in Lord's Day 3. This is not a matter of saying it's Adam and Eve's fault for our fall into sin. This is a matter of understanding where things went so wrong. Why things are the way they are. And coming to the point where we acknowledge, each of us as individuals, the depth of our own sin and our own misery. There's no denying the facts that the root of our sin and our hatred lie with that fall. And notice how the Catechism speaks of this event in answer 7. It refers there to the fall and disobedience of our first parents. Fall and disobedience. It's interesting language. When you think about a fall in such a context, it gives the sense that something disastrous has taken place. The fall of an empire. It means that the revolution has come on top. Only in this case, there's not the fall of a man-made empire. There's a complete fall from grace. Characterized as disobedience. Of course, that's the opposite of obedience. The Catechism could have simply referred to this whole event as sin. But it speaks about a fall. And it speaks about disobedience. And when you put those things together, you get the sense that something happened that could have been prevented but instead has led to disastrous consequences. Now think about it. What happened there in paradise? What happened there in the Garden of Eden? It comes through in a contrast. Man exchanged the image of God and took on the image of the evil one. Man took that love given to him by the Creator, his own father, In order to have friendship and a relationship with that ancient foe. And so instead of being a child of God by nature. Man became a child of the devil. Maybe that sounds harsh. But that's exactly the language that the Lord Jesus uses in John chapter 8. The problem is that this fall into sin... All the accompanying misery didn't stop at the borders of the garden. Because sin is not just an outward problem, 
goes right down to the deepest part of who we are. By having Adam and Eve removed from paradise, God was not simply removing them from a place marked by sin so that they could have a fresh start somewhere perfect. Because Adam and Eve, as they were taken out of the garden, took sin along with them. As we confess in answer 7, with that fall, man's nature became corrupt. And you see how this point is proven when you look at the account of the flood. Before God sent the waters on the earth, we read his motivations for doing so in Genesis 6 verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. So that's the state before the flood. Did the flood fix that? Was it somehow better after the flood? Well, no. Because after the waters had receded from the earth, the Lord speaks again in Genesis 8 verse 21. I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. The flood had not purged sin from the world. Noah and the seven other persons, his family preserved by God in the ark, they carried that same sinful nature corrupted with the fall. How did that happen? Well, we read about it in Genesis 5. Beginning in verse 1, there's echoes of chapter 1. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Between Genesis 1 and Genesis 5, you have Genesis 3, the fall into sin. And because of that event, Adam and Eve could not pass on the image of God as they'd been created to do. We read in Genesis 5 verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his own image. That's a plain contrast again. Instead of the Bible saying Adam had a son who reflected God, which is what God intended at creation, the Bible says Adam had a son who bore his image. That is, he bore that human nature. And it cannot help but be that way. Because something that is broken cannot produce something that is perfect. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, that nature which they corrupted was the only gift or the first gift that they could give to their descendants. Well, since all people trace their roots back to Adam, they all bear that same nature. Instead of being child of God by nature, all people are born as children of wrath. Ephesians 2 verse 3. And thus we sing those words of David in Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Our mother could not help but do so, because they share in that same sinful nature that comes as a result of our first parents' fall. Notice how in our confession that there's that identification of our first parents. 
It's important that we note this because the catechism started at the broadest circle, but then made things narrower. In question six, it spoke of man in general terms. Answer seven, it spoke about Adam and Eve. Well, now in that same answer, Adam and Eve are not just random individuals. They're specifically spoken of as our first parents, meaning your first parents, my first parents, the first parents of everybody here. The broadest circle has been brought to the individual. What happened so many years ago there in paradise, it has a direct impact on each one today. Why is man filled with hatred to God and hatred to the neighbor? It's because we share that same nature as our first parents. To use the language of Ephesians 4 verse 19, why do people, including us as well, become callous, give themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity? It's because we have the same sinful nature as every other person in this world. It's truly today, like father, like son, like mother, like daughter, but not in the way that God intended it to be. Because by nature, rather than reflecting the Creator, we reflect His arch enemy. So, where does the problem lie? Not with God. God set man up for perfect success. Problem lies right here with our own heart. Through our first parents, we brought sin, misery, and corruption into God's creation. The very ones created as the crown of creation, to rule over creation as they reflect the Creator, actually wreaked havoc on creation. It's by looking at what we are today in comparison with what God created us to be. That's when the depths of sin and misery come out most clearly. What God created good is wicked and perverse. That contrast could not be more plain. But there is more to consider as we come to our third point. When you think about a contrast, it's usually a comparison between two things. But now there's a third point to consider. There's always the question, how do we get ourselves out of this mess? How can we get things back to the way they used to be? How do we get back to the stage where we're filled with love for God, where we're filled with love for the neighbor, and that these things show in our everyday lives? Well, the answer is a penetrating one. Because the truth is, as hard as we work, as much as we want to get ourselves there, that's not possible. It's the point made in the final question and answer. Are we so corrupt that we are totally unable? Notice the strong language here. Are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? Catechism lays it out plainly. And the answer is simple. Yes. He doesn't even try to elaborate on that point. Because enough has been said in the question. We are 
inclined to all evil. We are totally unable to do any good. We're stuck. Dead in sin. Something that's dead cannot help itself to become alive. It must receive life from the outside. And when you talk about the dead being brought back to life, it's something miraculous. We know that from our own experience, or rather the lack thereof, because we don't see it happening that people who are dead just come back to life. But that giving of new life is exactly what we do read about in Scripture. And what does this new life consist of? The Bible tells us it's about restoration. It's a second genesis. Starting from the ground up, there's a recreation taking place. Not that we're working through ourselves, but that the Spirit is working in us. Before we can talk about what that recreation looks like more, we can't skip over an important step. Because what lies behind that recreation? That's where we see the work of Jesus Christ. Think about how the scriptures describe him. Colossians 1 verse 15, Paul speaks of Christ as the image of the invisible God. Yes, this means Christ is God in the flesh, but he's at the same time the eternal, natural Son of God. In Jesus Christ, we see the character of God revealed most perfectly. And in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether in earth and in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Colossians 2, verse 19 and 20. It's in Christ there's reconciliation. In Christ, united with him by faith, believing in him, we are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. And being that new creation in Jesus Christ, then we see where it's all going. For it's through the Holy Spirit who's in that process now of making us fully into that new creation, which is created how? After the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians 4. Through Christ, what man destroyed with the fall into sin is being recreated, rebuilt, and when we talk about it being rebuilt, it's not just a little patch here and there. It's not just a small software update. It's a complete renewal, a complete recreation, so that this image of God, which we exchanged through the fall and disobedience of our first parents, is perfectly restored. We are in that process of being recreated so that we reflect our Lord and Savior who is the image of the invisible God. And it's seen already in the fact that through Christ we have a new identity. We're adopted children of God. We too can trace our genealogy back and going through that line of Christ it can be said of us as well that one or that one is a son or a daughter of God. And brothers and sisters, that gives life a whole new purpose. Ephesians 4, the inspired apostle draws a contrast. 
those who live in the futility of their darkened minds as children of the evil one, with those who through faith are a new creation being renewed in the likeness of their Father. And so through the Spirit's work, we can look back at answer six, and we see the goal of life today. Being renewed in the image of God is so that we might rightly know God the Creator, heartily love Him, and live with Him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify Him. The purpose of our life as we live by faith is the very same as was given to our first parents back in paradise. And no, we cannot do it perfectly as they were able to do. But already now, through the Spirit's work, as we more and more begin to live out that image of God, we see what it looks like. There's the desire to grow in the knowledge of God. There's growth in love for God and love for the neighbor. And that draws us back to Lord's Day 2. How does the problem of our inclination to hatred get fixed? Through God the Holy Spirit. And then there's that honor and privilege to live with God in eternal blessedness, to praise and to glorify Him. And again, none of those things we possess in their fullest measure. What we have today is merely a foretaste. Yet what it does is it allows us already now to live out of what the Spirit is busy doing. That joyful news of the gospel is that today for each one who believes in Jesus Christ as their Savior, they are being recreated in the image of God. It's a beautiful confession. But it also presents a question. What does that mean to you? What does that mean to you that you are being recreated so that more and more you reflect the image of the Creator? How does that impact your life each day? How does that growth in love for God have an effect on the things you do and the way you deal with the neighbor? What does it mean to you today that already now you begin to live an eternal life praising and glorifying God? The questions that need to be considered because that is exactly what lies ahead. The Spirit will bring this work of recreation all the way to its final goal. In the New Jerusalem, those who belong to Christ will have that image of God perfectly restored. What God created perfect in the beginning will be completely recreated in the end. What man destroyed, God restores. The children of God adopted in grace will perfectly reflect their Creator. They will live perfectly. They will live forever as they dwell in His glorious presence as His children. And in glory and perfection, we will together exclaim with the church of all ages and places, O Lord, our Lord, how great is Your name's majesty. Amen.